I guess you have a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem there, as I'm sure comes up often in your work. A chicken and a rooster problem. A chicken and a rooster problem. <laughs> and there's some eggs in there too. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. On today's show, we'll be talking to Dr. Ruben Gurr, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, about a phenomenon that most of us have noticed at some point in our lives, the difference between the male and the female brain. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get right into it. Uh, my name is Ruben Gurr. I uh, studied uh, psychology and philosophy as an undergraduate at Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. I uh, got my PhD uh, in, uh, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, U.S. Did postdoctoral fellowship, 73-74 uh, at Stanford, and then 74 came to the University of Pennsylvania in the psychology department got involved with uh, imaging, so ended up moving to the School of Medicine. And uh, now I'm in the medical school, a uh, professor in the departments. I mean, my primary appointment is in psychiatry and I have secondary appointments in neurology and radiology. And I spend most of the time, most, most of my day in the belly of the hospital where the scanners are and uh, uh, studying brain and behavior. Great. So um, are gender differences in, in um, psychology and neuroscience part of your work, a big part of your work? Uh, actually, I remember the first time we found a, a big sex difference, uh, essentially finding that females had about 15 to 20 percent higher rates of blood flow in the brain. Uh, with imaging methods, we can look at the blood. Uh, at the blood flow, we can also look at the rate of sugar uh, burning or glucose metabolism uh, using another method. Um, and with that method, that's called uh, PET or positron emission tomography, um, we saw that the rate of, unlike blood flow, where females have higher blood flow, if you look at the rate of glucose metabolism, it's identical, mm. males and females, but it differs depending on the brain region. Some, some regions in a male brain are active, even when they are just resting and don't have anything, any task, and those regions that are active at rest when you're not doing anything, again, are different in males and females. Uh, in males, these are all the regions that are in the lower part of the emotional brain or the limbic system. Um, as you know, uh, with evolution, doesn't throw anything away. It takes the brain of a snake and puts on top of it uh, brain of a reptile, on top of it, the brain of a 
of a mammal, on top of it, the brain of a primate, and then on top of all that comes our big cortex. Uh, but none of the older brains are thrown away. They still are there, uh, pretty much in the same shape and doing the same thing. Um, so it turns out that in the male, all the parts of the, the older parts of the limbic system, of the emotional brain, are hyperactive when they are resting. Whereas in females, uh, it's the, the newer part of the limbic system, the cingulate gyrus, uh, which is on top of the corpus callosum and very closely linked to, to language areas. Uh, this, these are the, this is the part of the emotional brain that is more active in women. So that may relate to why women have an easier time talking about emotions. Uh, the, 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 the emotional brain is active right next to the speech area, whereas males, I don't know what they were thinking, but uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, pretty primitive parts of the emotional brain are, are active when you don't give them something to do. I see. So what are, what are those areas doing at rest? I mean, what would that equate to in terms of what's, what somebody's think? Is it equated to what someone's thinking about or? It's an interesting question when um, psychologists especially, but any, most scientists like to take an active role in their study. And we have a hard time tolerating the thought that we'll put somebody in the scanner and just let them sit there. Mm. We, we always give them something to do. Uh, but we, from the start, felt that we need to have some control condition. And uh, different labs use different control conditions. Um, our lab, as well as some others, said, well, a control condition has to be control. We just let them sit there and we just don't talk to them and we don't give them a task. We just ask them to relax. Just sit there, don't do anything, and just don't fall asleep. And uh, it turns out that when you do that, you get a very reproducible pattern of activity. Reproducible in the sense that if you take a person, do it one day, do it next day, do it next month, you get the same pretty much the same pattern of resting activity um, and that there is a characteristic pattern across people, um, a certain set of regions that become active when you don't have anything to do. And that that was uh, a finding that was reported by Mark Rakel from uh, Was Washington University back in 2000 and was extremely um, important because uh, it turns out that uh, it is important to know what parts of the brain to activate when you need a task, but it's as important to know to deactivate the, the brain when you don't have a task. And there are, there are a certain set of regions that they become active when there is no task, and presumably they're their job is to alert the appropriate regions when a task shows up, and that's these are called the def, that's called the default mode network, the network that becomes active when during default condition when you don't have when not, when you're not facing a challenge. 
Now, what does it mean practically? I mean, what what does it mean when you take somebody and you tell them, here you have uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes to just sit and don't do anything, without asking you to do anything, just sit there. Uh, I suppose you let your mind wander wherever it may, and uh, looking at the scans uh, and knowing what those parts do, those parts that become active in males and females, one could conclude that uh, females are probably thinking about relationships, uh, how to verbalize certain, they may verbalize certain emotions, um, the cingulate is a very, uh, is really a part of the newer brain. It's uh, fairly complex. It's almost like cortex. Um, whereas when you leave males by themselves, uh, I don't know, the, the, the lower part of the limbic system is involved with uh, uh, aggression, sex, uh, maybe some sports. We don't know what these people were thinking about, and uh, at any rate, the psychologists don't really trust introspection. So, uh, even if we asked them, uh, we probably couldn't even publish what they would have told us. You know, let me ask: Do these functional kind of physiological differences, um, like the metabolism, correspond to structural differences or cellular differences? Have, have has that been studied? So. Um, at this stage in the field, we are sort of studying specific modalities in isolation. Uh, we are beginning to put together modalities, um, but it's this work is really in its infancy, and we are still not quite sure how to do it. Um, there have been methods to measure the brain anatomy uh, using magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, uh, initially, MRI was used only to measure anatomy. Uh, now we have procedures that can let you measure blood flow with a modified MRI procedure, and it can let you measure uh, fluctuations in blood flow both when you are resting and when you are being, you are given a task. Um, so, in terms of structure, there have been multiple studies by now of uh, using MR, uh, and clearly there are structural sex differences. Um, Firstly, the male brain is larger, uh, proportionate to the larger size of the body. It's, uh, the males are about 13% uh, heavier and about 9% taller, uh, and their brains are about 11% larger, sort of in between. Uh, If you now uh, look at um, the reason the brains are larger is the, that the box is larger, the cranium is larger. And if you now look at the composition of the brain inside the, the, 
the cranium, uh, there are three types of tissue in the brain uh, or in the cranium. One is the nerve cells and the closed dendrites that surround them. And that stuff looks gray, so it's called gray matter and consists mostly of protein. Each nerve cell sends a fiber to connect to other cells. And when these fibers are long, uh, they need to be insulated because they send electrical signal in the same way that the uh, electrical company insulates the wires, the electrical wire, when it sends it to long distances, the longer the distance, the thicker the insulation. Uh, the electrical company uses rubber, mostly. Uh, the brain doesn't have rubber, it uses fat. Um, fat gets a more respectable name in the brain, it's called myelin. And it surrounds the fibers that connect different neurons or nerve cells. Um, and because fat is white, this part of the brain is called white matter. So we have gray matter, which are the cells, white matter, which are the myelinated fibers. And then, of course, the brain floats in fluid, uh, literally floats. Um, it has fluid all around it and fluid inside it. And that's called cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF. Uh, with MRI, you can measure the volume of each one of those compartments. What is the volume of the fluid? What is the volume of fat? And what is the volume of uh, proteins uh, in the brain? And uh, there you, we found a, another big sex difference. Um, in, uh, in males, the larger the, the, the head, uh, the more you have both gray matter and white matter. Uh, and a lot more fluid. In females, the larger the head, the more gray matter you have. Whereas the slope for white matter and for fluid is much shallower. So as a result, females on average have about the same volume of gray matter as males. Their brains are disproportionate disproportionately have disproportionately more nerve cells relative to fibers that connect them. Hmm. Um, so what, what would it mean to have fewer fibers? How would, how would that kind of manifest? So each one of those can have different advantages. Um, if you have fewer fibers, then the connection among the regions will be slower. But by the same token, when you have a smaller brain, you don't need the you don't need as many myelinated fibers. So if the brain is more compact, you need less fiber connecting them. Um, the the having more fluid is good for the males because uh, the fluid that cerebrospinal fluid nourishes the brain, but more importantly, protects it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you get a head injury every time mm -hmm. you sneeze. Because the back of your head is nice and smooth, but the front has nasty bones right above your eyes. And the front of your brain is sitting right on top of those bones. 
And so if the brain sh shakes in the box, um, without the fluid, it will rub against bones and get damaged. So men, men are more likely to get into fist fights and that sort of stuff. And so they need more fluid to protect their brains. Uh, so uh, when we look across many studies that were done with MRI in males and females, uh, this finding replicates that males have, uh, that females have percent of gray matter, whereas males have more white matter. Uh, more recently, we used a variant of MRI that's called diffusion tensor imaging or DTI. Uh, and that method lets you uh, quantify the fibers themselves. So it tells you how much, uh, roughly how much fiber is there uh, in the tissue, how much, how much fat that is layered on fibers uh, is in the particular tissue that you are examining. And that uh, recent study we completed where we looked at a large sample of almost a thousand uh, males and females, these were age range of 8 to 21. Uh, and uh, what we saw there was that uh, the predominant, the, 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 the most predominant direction of the fibers in male brains were from within the state within the same hemisphere. Whereas fibers in the female brains, the, the majority of them tended to connect between the, the, the two hemispheres. So from there, it looks like male brains are optimized to process information rapidly within each hemisphere, uh, especially connecting from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. Um, whereas in females, the brains are optimized to connect between the two hemispheres. Now, what we know about front and back of the brain is generally the back of the brain is where the information is processed and the front of the brain is the part that acts on it, that makes you do something with it. So in males, the, there is a predominance of a connection between processing and processing in action. What we know about the hemispheres is that the left hemisphere is the part of the brain that processes language, that thinks analytically, uh, sequentially, whereas the right hemisphere is more intuitive, does not have use language, that uses pictures, sensations, and so uh, from that, it would seem that in females, the thinking part and the intuitive part keep talking to each other. Uh, whereas in males, uh, they don't talk to each other that much. So you just described kind of two maybe higher order phenotypes, um, language and the, the connection between intuition and thinking. Are there other examples of known known higher order differences that are affected by these kind of basic anatomical differences? 
Well, um, one finding we had was that uh, the hippocampus, which is uh, a structure in the middle of the brain that is part of the temporal lobe, uh, but is uh, well known to be important for memory. Um, actually, uh, the work of a Canadian uh, neuroscientist, Brenda Milner, has been uh, really pioneering in this area. Uh, so the hippocampus, it turns out, is, is a part that does not shrink in girls and actually begins to, uh, begins to grow post-pubescence. Whereas in males, as you know, uh, brains grow up until around age two or three, between two and three. After that, it's downhill for the rest of your life. Um, and between the age of three and uh, 21, the most dramatic change is the loss of gray matter um, and the increase of white matter. So you lose cells and you gain fat inside the brain. Uh, um, and that's essentially the process of what we call myelination. Um, and the loss of tissue is called pruning. Basically, parts of the brain that you haven't used by the time you're an adolescent, the brain figures you don't need them and they will shrivel off and die. If you look at the hippocampus, you see in males it's, it keeps shrinking and actually the shrinking accelerates post-pubescence, whereas in females it stops shrinking at around pubescence and actually begins to grow again uh, following um, uh, um, following uh, puberty. Uh, and it's well known, it's behaviorally, that females have better memory than males, especially verbal memory and face memory. Uh, and their memory actually continues, the memory advantage continues to old age. And we have studies in older people that show that uh, females have more dopamine available in the brain. And the, that dopamine does not deplete as fast as the dopamine in male brains and to the extent that the dopamine level remains high in females, to that extent their memory will stay intact mm -hmm. into old age. So a memory advantage for females has been linked to both the volume of the hippocampus and to the uh, availability of dopamine, which is an important neurotransmitter related to learning. So um, just because you mentioned development, uh, is it known when some of these differences are um, uh, um, come about? Like, is it during, is it in utero or, or does it take until puberty to see them? Uh, some of the, so we have we have studied uh, children the youngest uh, we have studied where we looked at sex differences is about age eight and by that time 
both the behavioral differences and the brain differences can already be seen. Um, that's at age eight. Of course, the, the, as you grow older, those differences become larger and more pronounced. So, for example, the connection, the predominance of connection within hemisphere in males and between hemisphere in females is barely seen at age 8 to 11 and really shows up between age 11 and, and 15, age 15 and, and adulthood. Um, so some of those differences, uh, a lot of these differences are there already as young as we can look. Um, and but 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 some of them become more accentuated as you uh, go through adolescence and puberty. Is it thought that they kind of arise from from hormonal differences, or is it a uh, the the sex chromosome um, thing? I guess the answer is yes. Both. <laughs> no, yeah, it's very next to impossible to separate those effects. Okay. And probably the chromosome, of course, exerts its effect through neurotransmitters. And you know, estrogen and testosterone are also neurotransmitters in the brain. So um, it's known, for example, that estrogen promotes uh, cell growth, uh, whereas testosterone kills cells. So it's possible that some of the sex differences that we see in the uh, the uh, in 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 the differentiation postpubescence could be a hormonal effect and most likely are hormonal effect. Um, but that that interplay really needs to be studied a lot more. There's evidence that. Uh, the other evidence that hormones may play a role comes from the work of uh, uh, Stephanie van Gusen and her colleagues in in uh, Utrecht in Holland. Uh, they have studied uh, children with ambiguous sex. So uh, in America, as you know, your sex is probably the first thing that your mom knows about when she hears that she had a baby look what a beautiful girl boy but sometimes the the doctor gets stuck um, you have cases where the sex is ambiguous you have a very small penis that and some that you're not sure whether it's really a penis or a, or a clitoris and and vice versa and people are born with uh, ambiguous sex um, and basically, at some point, they, they have to decide, the parents have to decide whether they are going to raise a girl or a boy. Um, in America, the decision is mostly made by the surgeon, whichever surgery seems easier. Uh, but there are a lot of unhappy people. Um, and uh, Hopkins, where the surgery took place, uh, these surgeries were taking place, has been sued by people who said, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a male and you made me into a woman, uh, and vice versa. Uh, in Holland, they, uh, they have a big center in Utrecht where these kids uh, 
are evaluated and studied and they look at their preferences. Do they like to play with trucks or do they like to play with dolls? And then when it is clear what sex the kid sort of is tending toward, then they will start hormonal treatment in the direction of that sex. And they have studied uh, um, th those children and they found that when you masculinize a child like that, um, you, uh, well, when you, when you feminize a child, then they found that their verbal fluency goes up, their memory improves, uh, on, on the other hand, their spatial skills go down. Whereas when you, when you feminize uh, male to female, uh, transsexual, uh, their spatial skills improve, but their verbal skills go down and they become your typical grunting male. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's definitely hormonal. These treatments were so I want to make sure we get to this. I know you've done some work on it, and I think it's really an interesting topic. Um, the the kind of differences in susceptibility for mental illness between males and females. Mm -hmm. um, what's known about that? Well, male brains are different from female brains in health, and it's not too surprising that they're different in illness. Uh, in broad strokes. Uh, males are more susceptible to illnesses that influence the uh, fight-flight axis, anger and fear. Uh, so they are, they, there are many more males who are oppositional defiant, uh, psych psychopath, autism, schizophrenia. Uh, if you look at aggressive behavior, uh, physical aggression, males and females look like two different species. Uh, as you may know, uh, they have close to a thousand people on death row in California. I believe there are only 13 females hmm. among them. It's, it's totally disproportionate. If, don't need to do research, just open this morning's paper and if somebody uh, beat somebody up or inflicted physical injury on somebody else and you're betting it's a male, you'll be right something like 40,000 to 1. Uh, on the other hand, females are much more susceptible to diseases that influence the happy-sad uh, dimensions of emotion. Uh, they are much more vulnerable to depression, mostly. Um, depression is a female illness. The ratio is much higher um, in females. Uh, they are also more prone to um, eating disorders. Um, and that's basically it. So depression, eating disorder, anxiety disorders, um, whereas males are 
anxiety disorders is less pronounced. Definitely depression and eating disorders. Uh, males are more likely to suffer from psychosis, uh, autism, uh, oppositional defiant personality uh, disorders, uh, explosive disorders, I mean, uh, disorders related to, uh, to, to anger. I see. Let me ask you, um, from your own perspective, do you do you see a lot of these differences as kind of shifts in the distribution, kind of shifts in the mean? And there's some people that are, um, you know, there's some, like, is, is there ever a chance you would look at a female brain, look at the structure in the MRI or PET scan and say it's male because there's some overlap in the distribution? Absolutely. No, all, everything I talked about, I talked about averages and you, I don't think I can emphasize it enough. Um, and if you think of it more, think of it more like sex differences in height and weight. That's roughly the order of magnitude of the effect that we see here. So you know that on average, females are lighter and shorter. Uh, but of course, you can easily think of some females who are um, taller and heavier than most males that you know. And you can think of some males that are shorter and lighter than many females. So. Um, uh, the, 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 we're talking definitely about averages. Okay, okay. Um, I, know, I see that I have to let you go in a couple of minutes here, but I do want to ask you one last question. Um, uh, so, what would you say the most accurate kind of generalization that you've heard about? You know, you hear all kinds of generalizations. I just heard systemizing versus empathizing. Um, Right. And it sounds like there's some merit to some of those. What would you say the most accurate one is? Hmm. Jeez, that's a tough one. You, you're asking what would be uh, a way to a dimension of sex difference that I believe is correct and accurate. Males are blah and females are... <laughs> what, yes, what dimension do you feel like if you could, would capture the most variability between the sexes? I think if you, uh, if you, it, dep it depends on what you are using as a yardstick for a difference. And a standard for a difference in science is effect size. So which behavior could I take that uh, males are very likely to engage in, whereas females are very unlikely to engage in? I think that will have to be uh, physical aggression. Okay, okay. Men are physically aggressive, whereas males are physically aggressive, whereas females can be aggressive, but not physically, of course. There are conditions under which females will also be physically aggressive, 
uh, but it's as rare to find a female who engages in physical aggression as it is to find a male who does not or who never has. Let me put it this way. I mean, I don't get into fist fight anymore at my age, but you know, growing up, it did happen. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been really interesting. Um, is there any kind of final thing you want to say about your work or or anything? Well, I think it. I think the. I mean, this this part of my work, the, the, the sex differences, is part of what I do. But I think it's very important because I'm really concerned about the state of the relationship between males and females in the world. Uh, if you were a Martian uh, looking from up there, uh, you would think that these are, I mean, if you think of it as two nations fighting each other, then what we have is uh, nothing short of uh, genocide being, uh, being performed as we speak. Um, and uh, on the other hand, if you look for a simple definition of how advanced a particular society is, a simple yardstick is the extent to which males and females are treated equally. Um, so uh, I think the future of civilization depends on how fast females can uh, uh, seize equal power because until they do, we're not going going in good direction. Uh, I don't think there's been a war, uh, a day in the history without a war, and I'm absolutely sure that that would change once uh, once uh, the sexes share power more equally. All right, once again, that was Dr. Ruben Gurr, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today, and tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.